This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today. We discuss the latest news from Ukraine as the shell shortage continues to impact Ukrainian troops. And we analyse updates from Washington, D.C. as Donald Trump urges Republicans to reject the border and Ukraine aid bill. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. If we give President Zelensky the tools, the Ukrainians will finish the job. Slava Ukraini! Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 6th of February, one year and 346 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, and deputy US editor, Rosina Sabor. I started by going through the latest news from Ukraine. Let's start in the Kharkiv region, where a Russian missile strike has destroyed a hotel, killing a two-month-old baby and injuring three women. Olesny Hubuhov, the governor of Kharkiv, said the women, including the mother of the baby, were taken to hospital with blast injuries and shrapnel wounds. We think the strike on the three-storey hotel in the village of Zolochev was carried out by two S-300 missiles, causing damage to surrounding infrastructure and cars. The attack comes as Moscow launched at least 51 separate attacks throughout the day yesterday, firing at 10 communities along the Russian-Ukrainian border, injuring eight civilians and killing one. Down in Kherson, Russian shelling killed a 59-year-old woman. This comes from AFP, who reported that the strike targeted Novotyakinka, a village on the western bank of the Dnipro River. That's, of course, the de facto front line in the south of the country. Staying on the front lines then, and the Institute for the Study of War, the American-based think tank we quote from quite a lot, have written a little bit about the shell shortage faced by Ukrainian troops. It's not good news, to put it mildly, but we should spend a little bit of time on it. They write, Delays in Western security assistance continue to exacerbate Ukraine's shell shortage and undermine Ukraine's ability to use high-value Western counter-battery systems. To support this, they bring together a few other bits of detail. So yesterday, Ukrainian Minister of Internal Affairs, Ihor Klemenko, stated that Russian forces intensified their rate of artillery strikes by nearly 25% over the last week and shelled Ukraine over 1,500 times, targeting over 570 settlements. On February the 4th, the New York Times reported, by contrast, that Ukrainian forces in critical areas of the front, such as Avdivka, are increasingly rationing shells and can therefore only target masses of advancing Russian soldiers. 
They also note that Russian soldiers have apparently adapted and are now advancing in smaller groups that are harder for Ukrainian artillery to strike. Finally, the ISW bring in Ukrainian military analyst and retired colonel Petro Chernik, who noted that Ukrainian forces possess relatively better counter-battery capabilities, writ large, than Russian forces, but that, of course, Western counter-battery systems are only as effective as the number of shells that Ukrainian forces have at their disposal. Of course, the ISW previously reported that Russian forces are benefiting from the combined dynamic of Ukraine's ammunition shortage and its subsequent inability to conduct sufficient counter-battery warfare. A couple more pieces of news then before we go to Francis. The United Nations nuclear watchdog chief has said that security at Ukraine's Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is still, this is their quote, fragile. Uh, This comes from staff cuts by Russian authorities occupying the, the facility, which is among the 10 largest atomic power plants in the world. Raphael Grossi, who is visiting Kiev, told AP that his upcoming visit to the plant will aim to assess the impact of recent personnel reductions after Russia denied access to employees of Ukraine's Energoatom company. Just a few quotes from Rossi then. This huge facility used to have around 12,000 staff. Now this has been reduced to between 2,000 and 3,000, which is quite a steep reduction in the number of people working there. He continued... To man, to operate these very sophisticated big installations, you need a certain number of people performing different special, special, specific functions. So far, the situation is stable, but it is a very, very delicate equilibrium. So that is why I need to see for myself what the situation is and what the prospects in terms of staffing medium term and long term are as well. Just to remind ourselves, the International Atomic Energy Association has repeatedly expressed alarm about the risk of nuclear catastrophe posed by the facility, which has repeatedly been caught in the crossfire since the start of Russia's full-scale invasion. The plant's six reactors have been shut down for nearly 18 months, but it still holds large quantities of nuclear fuel that must be cooled. The collapse of the Hokovka Dam in June jeopardised access to the reservoir where water was drawn for cooling, while the presence of mines in and around the plant pose further risk. Remember, of course, that the plant suffered yet another blackout last month, highlighting continuing nuclear safety concerns as battles rage nearby. Grossi said, All these things tell us that the situation in Zaporizhia continues to be fragile, and it requires constant care. Finally, Kiev has announced that five Ukrainian intelligence officers secretly working for Russia as part of a powerful spying have been arrested. The four current and former officers were reportedly caught passing information about Ukraine's military sites, defensive positions and energy facilities to Russia's FSB security service. So the SBU security service said in a statement, the security service of Ukraine neutralized a powerful agent network run by the FSB's military counterintelligence, which was operating in Ukraine. The agency shared photos of the men being arrested for treason with their faces blurred out. The group is also accused of passing on information about defensive barriers near the Black Sea port city of Odessa, the location of rocket launches in the northeastern Kharkiv region, and information on Ukrainian troop movements and vehicles, the general prosecutor in Kiev said. Those are all the uh, frontline and military updates then. Francis Turnley, what have you been looking at? Thanks, David. Well, let's turn to Kiev first this morning, where Josip Borrell, the European Union foreign policy chief, has arrived this morning. His visit comes amid renewed international efforts to help Ukraine replenish its arms to fight off the invasion that nears, of course, its second anniversary. The EU's approval of that 50 billion euro economic assistance for Ukraine may prove crucial while the 60 billion dollar in funding from the US remains stuck in Congress perhaps indeed permanently which Rosina is going to discuss in detail shortly 
As we've discussed at length since the first episodes of the year, Europe is evidently trying to show its support to Ukraine irrespective of what happens in the United States. There's a very interesting long read in Foreign Affairs this week called Trump Proofing Europe, which lays out the full context of where we are. As it says, European leaders are hoping for a second Biden presidency that would protect the transatlantic bond and give them time and support to assume greater responsibility for their turbulent continent. But they may not get this time. A second Trump term may well exacerbate the instability Europe is already struggling to manage. It is in Europe's hands now to act and take concrete steps for its security and economy. It must also increase the EU's power, addressing institutional weaknesses that limit the organisation's capacity to lead in a world characterised by geopolitical conflict. I think this debate about increasing EU power gets to the heart of the matter. If one were to offer a critique of that argument, it is that increasing the EU's power could backfire depending on the form in which it takes. And what I mean by that, David, is that whether an increasingly powerful centre, federal-style EU on defence matters, is necessarily advantageous for two reasons. Firstly, it could be hamstrung by more sceptical countries like Hungary, the argument that one is only ever as strong as one's weakest link. And secondly, speed and dynamism. As I've mentioned before, it remains an open question to me and others whether the EU was advantaged or disadvantaged earlier on in the conflict and indeed at various stages by the need for agreement and the subsequent delay in providing crucial weaponry and other material to Kyiv, which nations like Britain, outside of the bloc, filled in instead. Some argue that EU nations were still free to send weapons if they wanted to, as the Czechs did, and that's true, but I still sense that there was pressure within the bloc for there to be one united policy, which took time. And it was time that Ukraine did not have. And if we're thinking long term, I think time does still have to be seen as a very valuable asset indeed. As such, this is a really important question. Good subject for a PhD thesis, actually, as it speaks to two alternative visions of Europe. One where defence power becomes more centralised, perhaps even with an EU army, and one that becomes less centralised, freeing up countries politically and financially to do more if they wish to proactively arm Ukraine without being hamstrung by process. I expect this will be a key theme in the months ahead. For as the piece in Foreign Affairs says, re-elected, Trump would be completely unchained from the old pro-democracy Republican establishment. He would likely surround himself with loyal administrators who do not challenge him, posing deeper challenges for Europe. Another key question, of course, and I think this is the elephant in the room, frankly, is whether Europe actually can fill certain gaps in the short or even medium term. The nature of some of the advanced weapons Kyiv receives from Washington, such as the Attackums, may be irreplaceable. Also, as discussed in the article, the essential contribution the US makes to European security is no longer 
primarily boots on the ground as it was during the Cold War, but in domains such as intelligence, reconnaissance and surveillance, strategic air transport, air-to-air refuelling and space observation and communication. No doubt this theme will be something we'll be exploring in more detail because obviously if Washington were to withdraw, I don't think as things stand there will be enough of what Kyiv needs for them to continue to hold back the Russians in the manner that they have and indeed we might well see them taking losses from the Russians. And then the question becomes, how does the world respond to that? Does Washington, Europe then wake up and say, well, we can't possibly allow this? Or does it actually say, well, there's nothing more we can do. We haven't got the capacity. It'll be something we will talk about at the event at the US Embassy here in London on the 15th of February. Just to flag on that, thank you to everyone who signed up. In-person tickets have now sold out. They were free, but you know what I mean. But we will still be live streaming it and we'll provide a link in the description for those who want to join us online and send us questions and just generally contribute. In other news, there has been further fallout from the debate over the future of Ukraine's Commander-in-Chief General Zeluzhny, with Tali Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, criticising the possibility that Zelensky might fire the country's top military officer. He said it was due to the general's leadership that many Ukrainians trust totally the armed forces. Today is a moment when politics might prevail over reason and the country's interests, he said on social media. Now, this shouldn't come as any great surprise. Tensions between Klitschko and Zelensky are well known, but it does speak to the different factions within Ukrainian society, which makes any changes to the top military brass extremely challenging. It's worth saying that such senior firings would be common, say, if they were to occur after a presidential election, when a president had, as it were, reaffirmed their power. That's not me saying that there should have been an election, only that this is an example of the pressure valve that an election can serve within a society and how essential it can be for allowing a profound change in direction. Every positive has a negative in the political context, particularly when elections are concerned. Moving on. The prosecutor leading Sweden's probe into the Nord Stream gas pipeline blast in the Baltic Sea in 2022 plans to announce a decision this week on whether to drop the case, press charges or request that someone is detained, the office said yesterday. So the pipelines transporting Russian gas to Germany were ruptured, of course, by a series of explosions in Swedish and Danish economic zones, hence their interest in this. Shortly after the incident, Sweden said its investigation into the Swedish economic zone found traces of explosive on the site, showing that sabotage had taken place. It's not publicly identified any suspects. As we've discussed at length, most recent investigations, including by De Spiegel and others, point to some Ukrainian involvement, something strongly denied by Kyiv. It'll be interesting to see what Sweden say, especially given that they seem set to join NATO within a matter of weeks. And since we're on the subject of oil, we discussed the impact of UK sanctions in Dom's really interesting interview with Lord Ricketts on Friday. Worth checking out if you've not listened to that. 
millions of barrels of Russian oil are apparently still being imported to the UK despite sanctions, according to research released today. The BBC report more on those loopholes that have allowed Russia to export crude oil to countries such as India, where the fuel is refined and then sold to the UK, something we've talked about and speculated about for many months now. The Centre for Research on Energy and Clean Air told the BBC that this refining loophole, their term, enables countries who have not sanctioned the Kremlin to import Russian crude, refine it into oil products such as jet fuel and diesel, and then export it to the UK. The head of their Europe-Russia policy and energy analysis said the issue with this loophole is that it increases the demand for Russian crude and enables higher sales in terms of volume and pushes up their price as well, which increases the funds sent to the Kremlin's war chest. An interesting subject and one we will continue to return to. And just lastly, David, as we are about to turn to Roz on the picture in the United States, the Kremlin has declined to comment this morning on whether former Fox journalist Tucker Carlson visited Putin's office. Russian media captured images of Mr. Carlson at various spots around Moscow on Monday, including at the Bolshoi Theatre watching the ballet, fueling speculation that he may become the first Western journalist to interview Putin since the outbreak of the war. In a video captured during his visit, Mr. Carlson said he wanted to talk to people, walk around and see how it's going in Russia. And it's doing very well. When asked if he would interview Mr. Putin, he simply replied, we'll see. And we'll have to see, David, what happens with that. But nonetheless, if there is such an interview, I think we will all hear about it. Well, thank you very much, Francis. Maybe we can come back to that later, this idea of whether Tucker Carlson is a journalist. I mean that as a genuine open question. But Francis, I'd be very keen to hear your thoughts on that. But let's before that, let's go to Rosina. Uh, Roz, thank you so much for joining us. It's really good to hear you again and have you back on the podcast. Could you just lay the groundwork for us and bring us up to date with the latest on the prospective deal on US funding for Ukraine? Thanks, guys. Great to be with you. So Ukraine has been waiting for this moment for months This was the bill that was supposed to address the complex political arithmetic of both chambers on Capitol Hill. So just to bring listeners back up to speed, this is a $118 billion bill. It tied money for Ukraine with security funding for Israel, Taiwan and a substantive set of changes to US immigration policy and funding for more border patrol. Those may sound like unlikely bedfellows and they are. But in the context of growing Republican scepticism on Ukraine, a regular refrain of the GOP has been, why are we spending money to help Ukraine secure its borders when we should be focusing on our own? This bill was supposed to address that argument. It was supposed to be a quid pro quo. It had something for everyone and something every faction within Congress didn't really like. A bit of spinach with the red meat policy to look at it another way. It was unveiled on Sunday night and it coupled the toughest changes to immigration policy we've seen in decades and 20.2 billion for extra border patrol resources with 60.6 billion for Ukraine, 14.1 billion for Israel and its war against Hamas, 10 billion in humanitarian aid to civilians both in Israel and in Gaza and the West Bank and just short of 5 billion for countries in the Indo-Pacific. Just to underscore how eager Democrats were to get this bill over the line, there's no mention here of a pathway to citizenship for undocumented migrants 
or extra protections for those with that status. In the past, anything that didn't include some assurances on that score would have been a non-starter for Democrats. So we're in an extraordinary position where we have Democrats championing some of the toughest immigration reform we've seen in a very long time, Republicans on board with them. This has been a months-long effort between senators with a lot of bipartisan credibility. James Lankford of Oklahoma, Kristen Sinema of Arizona, and Chris Murphy of Connecticut. So a Republican senator, an independent senator, and a Democrat senator, all working closely on this bill. But before the text of this bill was even revealed, we had hardliners on the Republican side claiming it was dead on arrival. Why? Well, because while this legislation might have met the complex calculations I mentioned on Capitol Hill a few months ago, the political landscape has changed. In the last few weeks, Donald Trump has effectively cemented his status as the presumptive Republican nominee. The former president is still being challenged by Nikki Haley, but most elected Republican officials now see the GOP primary race as a foregone conclusion. The Republicans essentially know that the race for the White House has kicked off and they do not want to do anything that could hand Joe Biden or the Democrats political cover. And this bill does just that. Ross, thank you so much for that summary. Let's talk about Trump a little bit more then. What's his position on this issue and what's his involvement been so far? Well, Donald Trump and his allies have been working furiously behind the scenes to gin up opposition to this bill. And we've already seen a number of Republican senators come out and oppose it. There are about 31 Republican senators, I think, at last count that have endorsed Donald Trump. And he is really waging a pressure campaign with those senators. As I've said, the race for the White House has already kicked off. And Donald Trump has been quite open about the fact that he doesn't want to give any political gifts to the Democrats. And he's openly said, this bill does just that. So even though this is what the Republicans have been calling for for a very long time, serious immigration reform, now it doesn't work in their favour. Political headwinds have changed. And what we're seeing is the new MAGA consortium of the GOP coming up against the old guard, the final bastion of the GOP establishment in Congress. Looking forward then, Roz, what happens now? What should our listeners be aware of? What's coming up? Well, the Senate will vote tomorrow on whether to advance this package. The Senate will need 60 votes during this procedural motion to move forward with considering the legislation. That means they need at least 10 Republican votes ordinarily to overcome a filibuster. The trouble is, this bill isn't just opposed by hardline Republicans. It's also had opposition from progressive Democrats. So that likely will drive that threshold higher. And as things stand at the moment, it doesn't look likely that this bill is going to go very far. Even if it does advance out of the Senate, we've heard from House Speaker Mike Johnson that the bill is dead on arrival when it arrives at the House of Representatives. Rosina, do you think that potentially one way of looking at this is that uh, President Biden may have, in, in by binding all of these different things together in, in an effort to get it over the line, that might have been a strategic mistake? Because as you said earlier, there's kind of something in this package that everyone can dislike. Is that fair? Well, I think the political calculus was, yes, there's something that everyone will dislike. 
but there's also something that everyone really wants to see. And actually, it was Republican insistence that immigration reform be tied to Ukraine aid that resulted in this package. So Joe Biden's thrown down the gauntlet to Republicans and he said, look, you can either have serious immigration reform or you can continue playing politics and the voters will know. At the moment, it seems that the Republicans are deciding to continue playing politics. Now, Joe Biden might go back to his original proposal, which is simply passing a clean bill with just Ukraine aid on its own. But that's unlikely to be given much of a hearing in either the House of Representatives or even the Senate at this point. Why not? Well, because Republicans have insisted that any aid to Ukraine be fully costed, have measures in place that mean, you know, it's fiscally responsible, any offsets to the budget elsewhere. And quite simply, the House of Representatives has no appetite to pass a solitary Ukraine bill. From what you're saying, Rosina, it sounds as if maybe then that Biden's original strategy, which was to give the GOP what they wanted, uh, might have worked. And then Trump arrived on the scene. Is that a fair way of looking at this? Yeah, David, I think, as I said, this was the right bill for the moment a few months ago. It had chances of passing then. The political calculations have changed in the last few weeks. We are now in an election year. The Republicans are essentially looking to the man who will almost certainly be their nominee. And... Donald Trump demands fealty from his allies. He will remember, if they don't get back on side with him, when it comes to these big bills, which will have a a political impact come November. So it was the right bill for the moment last year. It no longer makes political sense for Republicans. Rosina, just one more question from me, because I know Francis would like to come in. Um, I think you've done a brilliant job of explaining this to us and taking us through it. I mean, you you heard earlier in my updates about the extreme shortage on the front lines of the Ukrainian armed forces unable to uh, stop Russian attacks along the line. We're looking today at more reports from Avdivka, where the Ukrainians are being very, very hard pressed as the Russians advance and try and encircle the town. have those points been made? Who, who is, do Republicans recognise the consequences of what's happening with this bill? Absolutely. And there's been a string of visits from Europe in the last few weeks trying to really hammer home that point. We had Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO chief, here last week, meeting both behind closed doors with Republican leaders in Congress, but also making very public appeals for more money. And not just money, the message has been there is a political cost here, there is a leadership deficit when America steps back from its role as the leader of the Western coalition backing Ukraine. And who fills that void is a question no one really has an answer to yet. And the danger is, as we heard Secretary of State Tony Blinken say last week, we heard Jens Stoltenberg say last week, if US if the US stops supporting Ukraine, where does that leave Ukraine's other allies? Will they continue to fund Kiev and its forces 
in the absence of US support? And that's a big question nobody really has an answer to yet. But as I say, the dynamic has changed. We are now in an election year and everyone on Capitol Hill, Republicans and Democrats alike, are looking at domestic politics first. Thanks for coming on, Ross. Really interesting hearing your perspective on all of this. Just want to ask whether you think Trump is just using his opposition to this bill to enhance his sympathetic policies more broadly towards Putin because of that conception, rightly or wrongly, that enabling Putin, being friendly towards him, might assist him in some ways in winning the presidency. Has there been much discussion about that? So I think, Francis, the way to look at this is in the context of the situation on the US-Mexico border, which might sound quite wacky as a way to look at US policy on Ukraine. But Republicans have been incredibly successful with this refrain of why are we protecting Ukraine's borders? Why are we helping Ukraine secure its own sovereignty when we are seeing that ourselves with this crisis that is unfolding on the border? That is a major political issue. It's a top issue of concern listed repeatedly in every single poll done of the US electorate. We've seen record numbers arriving on the US-Mexico border in the last few years. The border really is in crisis. That's not a political statement. The facilities here are overwhelmed and something needs to change. And the Republicans and Donald Trump have been very successful in targeting that issue and tying that domestic issue to Democrat foreign policy, Joe Biden's foreign policy. So this really is about, as I said, a quid pro quo bill that no longer serves Donald Trump's purposes. Thank you so much, Rosina. Francis, any other thoughts on this? Well, just that it reminds me of that piece by Fiona Hill I quoted a few weeks ago where she said that the real tragedy on Ukraine at the moment within the Washington context is that it has now allowed itself in a sense or has been allowed by those who should know better to become a partisan issue as opposed to a bipartisan one. I mean, really, when this is a fundamental national security issue for the United States as well as international, I would argue, the tragedy cannot be understated of given the importance of the moment of this bill not passing as a priority. Because as we've said many times before, the fact remains that, yes, Ukraine is holding the line at the moment against the Russians. But this is a critical year in terms of getting infrastructure, getting material, getting weapons, all of those things that will prove essential not only for them holding on, but potentially to be making substantial counteroffensive next year or even potentially later this year, ones that may well be conducted very differently than the one that did not succeed as hoped last year. So the time for urgency is now, but it seems to me that that message of urgency now is not getting through because it seems that Kyiv is doing quite well on its own. It's holding off the Russians. That's all it needs to do. And at some point, both sides will come to the table. But that fatally 
misunderstands the Russian perspective, as we've talked about many times, which is they have not abandoned their maximalist aims in Ukraine and think that the longer that they can wait, that the stronger their political and military situation will become. And I'm afraid that that has actually that strategy is paying dividends. The longer that this is going on, the longer that Trump is present and is doing and saying what he's currently saying, it is taking Ukraine off the agenda. And it is unfortunately doing worse than that. It is meaning that the Republicans who support him are not perhaps saying what they really feel on Ukraine, which I think there is a wider understanding in the Republican Party than people perhaps are willing to publicise. But nevertheless, they are afraid for all of the reasons that Rolls has talked about for not wanting to see it as an impediment to being the majority party following the presidential election. So unfortunately, all of this, in summary, is showing that Putin's understanding of the West and the reliance of it on the Washington and thereby the possibilities of a Trump nomination are paying off. And it's extremely concerning. And I think that you are seeing Europe this year waking up to that reality for all the reasons I talked about earlier on. But there remain major unanswered questions, which is essentially if, in worst case scenario, Washington does choose to withdraw support for Ukraine, how much can Europe fill the gap? And I still don't think that question has been adequately answered. And just going back over to the Russian side, I was reminded of a thread posted by our colleague, senior foreign correspondent Roland Oliphant, about uh, Russia's war economy, in which he does say, I've just got it in front of me, on the war economy, yes, Shoigu, that's the Russian defence minister, will shamelessly inflate tank production stacks. Yes, millions of rubles will disappear. Yes, they'll churn out subpar shells and Russian soldiers will die needlessly as a result. But none of that means they won't pull it off. Francis, can we come back to that question I asked you earlier on uh, Tucker Carlson in Moscow? I meant it as a genuine open question. Can we call him a journalist or not? I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, I know that as soon as one journalist starts to critique another journalist or other or journalism more broadly, that some people begin to roll their eyes and think it all becomes a little bit of a competition. Because the fact is, I think journalism has actually had a bad few years, if you look at it from the decade perspective. I'm not talking about the Telegraph at all. So I mean, generally speaking, there have been a lot of misunderstandings that have been encouraged by the media, not least on foreign affairs, so many miscalculations. And I think that there's an understandable degree of scepticism amongst the public. And it's that scepticism, of course, that people like Tucker Carlson have been able to jump on because they said there are issues that the media are not covering and I will cover them for you. And of course, in a democratic free society, that's a very popular thing. But Whilst he may well raise certain issues that are not being covered by the mainstream, the manner in which a journalist like him does so, I would say, falls short of the standards that journalism should set itself and that journalists like us set ourselves. And that is about accurate fact-checking. That is about avoiding repeating misconceptions, looking at the detail. And evidently, there are numerous examples of Mr. Carlson making all sorts of remarks, not least about Putin and Russia, which are incredibly naive, if not worse. And there are many who would posit it actually actively serves as a form of disinformation from a Putin sympathizer. So for me, it's more activism than journalism, David. But that is not me the same as saying that journalism itself has covered itself in glory and that people like him are in some way, 
you know, a kind of a cancer on our polis. I think the fact is there have been failures in international journalism generally in the West that have enabled people like Carlson to become ultra powerful. And that is journalism's failing as much as it is his personally. Rosina, very quickly, before I before we move to our final thoughts, can I ask you about what you think the the impact of Carlson's visit to, to Moscow and any potential interview with President Putin may be? How is he seen in the US? Well, Tucker Carlson, much like Donald Trump, has a loyal following and one that is closely following everything he does. I would say that his platform has shrunk significantly since he left Fox Fox News. And while this may have some impact among a certain portion of conservative viewers, his conservative audience, they may look more favourably on Russia as a result of this. I would be cautious about overstating A, Carlson's platform and B, American interest in foreign wars at this moment. As I said, we're in an election year and the focus is very much at home. I think that's absolutely right. But I think one thing that is also important to remember is the importance of Tucker Carlson on platforms frequented by important politicians, not least, of course, X, where now his show is broadcast from, formerly known as Twitter, of course, Russian disinformation narratives, narratives that misunderstand important complexities about the war, have definitely been ramped up in the last year or so compared to the beginning of the invasion. I think that is an active effort on the parts of the Kremlin and others for reasons we've talked about in the past. And so when you do have people like Tucker Carlson being, of course, promoted hugely on platforms like X by indeed Elon Musk then it will be seen by many people who perhaps are not covering or looking at this war as in detail as we are and who are in positions of influence and who will think, ah, well, okay, maybe I've got that wrong or they'll feel that the mood music is changing and as a result will not do or say as much as they might have that was perhaps more sympathetic to Kiev prior to this. So I totally agree with Roz in that his influence within the American theatre has been greatly reduced. But if one looks at where his influence is, that can still have an impact. And I think that's where the worry should be. Thank you very much, Francis. And I would reach out to our American listeners at this point and say, do get in touch if you have thoughts about this. It's not something that being a Brit and being Brits on this podcast, we know. How does it go down? Do you see friends and family tuning in? Are these are the narratives more pervasive than perhaps they were before? We, of course, more than welcome you to email in the email addresses in the show notes. Coming up after this short break, we look at the increasing diplomatic closeness between Russia and the United Arab Emirates as the country's presidents develop their own friendly relations. Then we hear Rosina and Francis's final thoughts. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com. Francis, we've got one more update from you and then we'll go to our final thoughts. Thanks. Just a brief one, David. Listeners will recall that James Crisp from The Telegraph reported live on the podcast when Putin visited the United Arab Emirates a few weeks ago. And we learned today that Putin and the president of the UAE vowed to further develop their friendly relations after discussing the war in Ukraine and the Israel-Hamas conflict in a phone call. The Russian president thanked the UAE for helping in brokering prisoner exchanges of more than 200 soldiers from each side between Moscow and Kiev last month. Putin also raised the, quote, terrorist attack by Ukraine against an 276 plane with prisoners in the call. Of course, something that has been widely discussed on this podcast recently, as well as praising additional aid to the Gaza Strip. Now, just for context, as part of the OPEC plus group of all oil producing nations in that region, Russia needs trade with the UAE and after Europe reduced its dependence on Russian gas following the invasion. But it also speaks, and this is why I mention it in its own section to Kremlin's geopolitical priorities at this moment. Putin uses the Israel-Hamas conflict as a means of criticising the United States and its relationship with Israel and warming himself to Arab leaders. Hence the Hamas delegation welcomed in Moscow after the October 7th attacks. I think it was interesting that Grant Shapps, Britain's Defence Secretary, when asked in the House of Commons, isn't it more than a coincidence that the proxies of Russia's ally in the Middle East have been so much more active whilst Russia is so desperate we turn our attention away from supporting Ukraine? He replied as follows. My right honourable friend has absolutely hit the nail on the head. Russia and Iran are working together with the same kind of drones being fired. Sometimes the Shahid drones being fired in Ukraine by the Russians, courtesy of Iran, are also being fired by the Houthis. Now, that's one of the first official confirmations I've seen that drones used in Ukraine have been deployed by military proxies in the Middle East, something that we speculated about at the time. I still think that there is a strong case to be made that if the war in Ukraine had not happened or been enabled to have gone on as long as it has, then Hamas would not have had the military or political cover to carry out the October 7th attacks as they occurred. That remains a hypothesis and it may well be up to future historians to judge. But nevertheless, it's important, I think, that we see Putin's manoeuvrings at the moment, his relationship with Iran, his relationship with the UAE and other Arab nations, and more broadly, his remarks in the current geopolitical context as all being interconnected and as part of a broader strategy for Russia and other anti-Western powers to try and erode trust in the West in the hope that with a Trump victory, there will be a further fragmentation that will enable a bolstering of him and allies. So a worrying moment, but worth we pay attention to. Thank you very much, Francis. Just a quick note to listeners. I will be talking to James Rothwell, our Berlin correspondent, later today on an article he wrote with Natalia Vasilieva and Joe Barnes on the Shahid drone. The article is called How the AK-47 of Tehran Changed Warfare and Set Fire to the Middle East. We'll be recording that later today and it'll go out in our Battle Lines podcast, sister podcast to Ukraine, the latest on Friday. Well, let's move now to our final thoughts. Francis Sternley, would you like to go first? 
Just a very brief one, David. According to the Moscow Times, Russian authorities will most likely start blocking major VPN services in March. That's coming from the head of the Kremlin-aligned Safe Internet League. Downloads of VPNs, which help users access blocked websites, surged in Russia after authorities started blocking Western social media platforms and websites, including the telegraphs, and scores of Russian independent news outlets amid the invasion of Ukraine. There are often considered many means of accessing information, but VPNs is the most prominent She said, VPNs, especially those that are free, they're a total portal into hell. It's a big black hole in your device, she told a group of high school students in the city of Yekaterinburg. When asked about rumours that the Russian government may be planning to block VPNs by March the 1st, she replied, yes, that's most likely the case. Now, to stress, it's impossible to block every VPN, but the state can ban some of the major ones. More likely, remarks and rumours like this are designed to instill a climate of fear around the elections as part of the general clampdown we've discussed. But I still think a noteworthy intervention, David. Well, thank you very much, Francis Sternley. Rosina Sabal, would you like to finish today's episode? Absolutely. Thanks, David. I don't want to end on too pessimistic a note, but I think the current legislative skirmish in Washington is... A really sober moment that is worth reflecting on. To stress, there is still strong Republican support for funding Ukraine. But the mechanics of how to get that legislation through Congress have become incredibly difficult. As things stand, Congress has put itself on a course to vote down funding that would reflect its commitments to three key strategic allies, Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, as well as, of course, rejecting a rare instance of bipartisan work on a complex domestic issue. That has really underscored the limitations of Joe Biden's presidency and raised questions about where it leaves America on the world stage. I hope we can get some answers in the near future and hope to be back on to talk about them soon. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. Or sign up to Dispatches, a world affairs newsletter which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Charles Gear, and the executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 